You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. This is going to be fun. <laughs> Who, who's really excited about this? Who's a little nervous about this? <laughs> that makes both of us. Uh, they say you should never talk about religion or politics. The next 12 weeks, we're talking about both. So great uh, that you could be here today. My hope uh, for this morning uh, is to lay something of a cultural foundation before we dive into this series, into these topics. Uh, it'll feel a little different. Uh, we're not going to be unpacking any one Bible passage. Instead, I want to lay a cultural and biblical foundation for us all. As I was thinking about this moment, uh, I was reminded of uh, uh, a cultural moment in 2017. Now, 2017 was a big year for our world. Uh, 2017, it was significant. It was the year that we got introduced uh, to a BBC journalist uh, doing a live cross about Korean politics, trying to hold it together when two toddlers come storming in and a desperate wife trying to save the day. Hands down, the funniest thing BBC has ever produced. 2017 was also the year that Warren Beatty awarded at the Oscars the best film picture to La La Land, and as they came up to receive, discovered that he had the wrong envelope. The winner was, in fact, Moonlight. Speaking of mix-ups, 2017 was also the year that took many people by surprise as Donald Trump was inaugurated as President of the US, uh, had his fair share of critics. Uh, people were very fearful that his rallies were going to incite violence, uh, no shortage of social commentary comparing uh, his, his leadership with that of Nazi Germany. Uh, but in his defense, Frankie Boyle pointed out that Trump is nothing like Hitler. There's no way Trump could write a book. Here in Australia, uh, the Richmond Football Club. There we go. Got a few fans. Won the, the, won the flag for the first time in like 37 years. Pauline Hansen made headlines for wearing a burqa in uh, Parliament in 2017 was also a big year for the Bible Society who celebrated its 200th anniversary. Now, to help celebrate their 200th anniversary, the Bible Society teamed up with Cooper's Brewery. Cooper's, family-owned business from South Australia, they team together and they say, you know what we can do to celebrate? Let's release 10,000 beer cans with Bible verses printed on them. That's going to be great. As someone who planted a church in a pub that apparently baptized people in beer, I'm like, yes, yes, and amen to all of this. But then things took a surprising turn. The Bible Society decides to double down on its partnership and thinks, I've got a great marketing idea. Uh, let's put together a series of political videos as tackling Australia's toughest issues while keeping it light. You remember this clip? Here is a rep in the middle from the Bible Society sitting next to two liberal MPs, uh, Tim Wilson and Andrew Hastie. 
They're enjoying a lovely Cooper's Light beer while discussing uh, marriage equality ahead of the plebiscite later that same year. Andrew, on the right, Liberal MP, holding a conservative view on the Marriage Act. Uh, Tim, on the left, also a Liberal MP, himself a a, a gay man, uh, advocating for marriage reform. Now, when you see three middle-aged white men in a cross-promotion with the Liberal Party, Cooper's Beer and the Bible Society talking about the Marriage Act, you might be thinking, what could possibly go wrong? Well, within a few short hours, a massive campaign came out calling Cooper's Brewery to account for their homophobia. Uh, Hashtag boycott Cooper's went viral. Uh, We then had news reports with uh, pubs across the east coast of Australia saying they're no longer going to be pouring out Cooper's beer. Uh, You had everyday beer drinkers saying, that's it, I'll never drink this bigotry beer ever again. You know that saying, all publicity is good publicity? Not if you work for Cooper's. Uh, They went into damage control, releasing not one but two press releases, uh, backpedaling from their relationship from the Bible Society, denying that it had anything to do with the clip. The ad is cancelled, the website is pulled down, the boycott continues. And so what happens next is the CEO of Cooper's, along with the finance director, go before the camera for this major press moment. Uh, it's they're like reading this script with so much like focus and nervous, it's like a terrorist ransom video where they're saying, we had nothing to do with the Bible Society, Uh, uh, we're we're cancelling the 10,000 beers Uh, and to really like the cherry on top, we want to make it absolutely clear, we support marriage equality and the LGBTIQ plus community. Breathe. Now, What are we to make of this? Uh, Looking back on this cultural moment, there are a few observations that I think we we can make. First, we need to concede that when it comes to engaging culture with the big issues, particularly when politics and sexuality are involved, Christians can be a little tone deaf. Uh, I'm sure the Bible Society intended well, but the clip... (laughs) reveals that they hadn't quite read the room. Um, Tackling such a big topic and they're like cross-promotion with liberal MPs and beer and and, and the Bible Society, like uh, it was awkward at best, but a little bit desperate. Uh, And and yes, that reveals something about the Bible Society, but I think it says something also about Christianity in general. Christians have not always been great at reading the room. That's the first thing to note. Second, Second, the uproar over the clip made it absolutely clear that every organisation in Australia was now on notice. If your business failed to wave the flag and get behind marriage equality, you could and would be cancelled. That was the clear message. And that was true for companies like Coopers, but also, as you know, for individuals who weren't prepared to toe the party line. So whether you worked at Qantas, 
uh, whether you're an educator in a public school, whether you're a football player, right? You need to not only understand and, and respect the other view, you need to wear the badge and wave the flag. Third, the Coopers moment signaled to us all that any attempt to have a civil conversation about the big complex issues of our day uh, are not only <laughs> difficult, but likely to be shut down. Uh, they're likely to be shut down. And, and let's be honest, I don't think any of us here today know where that all ends. Um, was the Coopers, uh, Coopers backlash just a case of bad marketing or a PR disaster? Or is this, was this a sign of things to come? Now, as we consider <clears throat> the political and cultural landscape, um, how are we to respond? Over the last decade, uh, I've observed that Christians in Australia and across the globe have responded in a number of ways. Some Christians, let's be honest, have just chosen to withdraw. This is the Christian who sees the scrutiny, the heat in the public square and decides to retreat. They don't want to enter the conversation, they don't want to get into the debate, they want to distance themselves from po um, politics, they avoid those conversations... Sometimes their view is, is the world certainly doesn't radiate the light of Christ. Actually, it's a ship sinking and I just want to jump overboard and swim to shore. I want to withdraw. Another response is not the Christian who withdraws from their politics. It's the Christian who worships their politics. This is the Christian who's convinced that if we're going to stop the, 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 the wave of secularization in our culture, we need to rise up. We need to pray and vote for the right Christian leader, someone who's going to hold up that Bible and ensure that God's Word leads our land. Third, it's important to say that the cultural shift, particularly of the last five years, uh, has also led many Christians into a sea of worldliness. Uh, in the past few weeks, everybody, I'm sure you've seen uh, census data and, you know, a decline in people associating with religion and, like, that's, that, you know, we've read that, seen that, but you actually need to go a little bit deeper and recognize that underneath that, uh, we're not only seeing a, a drop in people um, attending church, but actually a shaping of different views and values within the church. For example, uh, there was a leading study, Pew Research, uh, looking at what Christians believe about same-sex marriage, right? And I'm using that as a case study, again, because it's not actually a topic we're diving into in this series, right? But they did this research, uh, and they discovered in 2007, which is when we planted this church, uh, in 2007, less than 10% of Christians were supportive of same-sex marriage. 90%, more than 90% of people who went to church were like, no, 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 marriage is covenant between one man one woman. By the time this church celebrates our 10th anniversary, more than 37% of people attending church now are in favor of same-sex marriage. And if you're in the younger generation, which is probably most people in this room, a lot of people in this room, that jumps as close to 50%. So you say, what has changed? <laughs> has the Bible changed? No. Our culture has and our culture is forming a people, and people are looking to that surrounding culture. The fourth, and perhaps most notable of all responses, is, is not withdrawal, 
Well, the worship of politics or, or worldliness, it's, it's one of war. <laughs> uh, our culture is not only increasingly political, but incredibly divided. Right, and this is where, if we can just enter into a very difficult space for just a moment, COVID was incredibly complex. We must recognize that you know, COVID came in to a world that was very uh, politically um, uh, animated and, and, and there was lots of you know, debate about Trump's election and then race riots in the US and, and people were trying to navigate all of these very important complex issues and then boom, COVID lands and lights uh, is fuel for the fire. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, we, we've got less control. All of a sudden, we're isolated. We're alone. All of a sudden, we've got politicians telling us what we can do and what we can't do. And this led to this massive cultural divide that we saw on our streets and on our social media, but also, let's be honest, in the church, right? Now, um, when, when the vaccine stuff, and I know this is a very touchy topic, and I'm probably going to step on a landmine here, but just come with me, right? When that, you know, happened, you know, my wife and I went down to the medical clinic, not really thinking too much about it uh, to get the first vax. We're pretty early adopters, I guess you could say. We were there, um, and uh, I decided to take a photo of the moment, which I do for most things, uh, took a photo and posted on social media, not intending to make a political statement. But little did I know, within seconds, my inbox lit up and posts and comments that really just showed me, wow, this is actually an incredibly divisive issue. You know, I had some people saying, well done, this is great, uh, we should have like vaccine centers at church and go for it, right? And then I had other people saying, this is terrible. Like really on the extreme end, uh, I had people saying, guy, you're a complete sellout. Uh, as a pastor, you've just led the whole church to destruction. Uh, did you not know that the vaccines altered your DNA? You can't go to heaven anymore. Right? I, I'm not making that up, right? It's a co- and again, I realize it's complex, lots of, right? Um, we had people leave the church, and, and, and on both sides, it's... And this happened across the globe, right? Because I'm connected with a lot of pastors across the globe, and they all said it. Like, if you said this, boom, you lost that many people. If you said that, you lost these people. Right? It used to be that we would uh, view our politics through the lens of the Bible. Now it feels like uh, we're viewing the Bible and choosing our church through the lens of our politics. So you say, Guy, how are you feeling about this series? <laughs> Piece of cake. No, I'd be honest, there's a sense of trepidation. I may have uh, woken up a few times last night. Right? There are landmines. I mean, just hearing Brenton and Steph talk through those issues, I'm like, what kind of nut is going to get into them? Like, there's some landmines here. And I just want to be acknowledged up front, there is a good chance I'm going to step on a few along the way. Maybe I already have, okay? So that's, that could happen. But I'm also an optimistic person, and I also <laughs> approach this series with a sense of um, anticipation. Because I reckon we have an opportunity to do what very few people get to do, and that is to grapple with these big issues. Um, We get to learn new things. I'm going to learn new things. You will learn new things. That's cool. And we get an opportunity, Lord willing, to, to talk in respectful ways and learn how we can disagree agreeably. That's really cool. And what I'm most excited, you know what we get to do? We get to consider Jesus. We get to see Jesus, 
we get to understand that Jesus, in the midst of all of this hostility and confusion and angst, that in Jesus there is a, there is a much better way. There's a much better way. So, uh, next week, next week we are diving in head first into uh, the top 10 issues as voted by you, beginning with transgender rights. But before then, I want to provide you with four principles, four principles for this series. And my hope is that these four principles, ideas, um, would give you an indication of how we're going to be navigating what we've got ahead, but also give you a sense of our hope and our vision for this series and for us and for you as a church. So you ready for this? Good, let's do it. Number one, if you're taking notes, here it is. Number one, guys, it's, it's important <laughs> that we understand the left and the right and why we need both. It's important you understand the left and the right and why you need both. So many of you may know that the story of the left and right, or left and right, actually finds its origin uh, around the French Revolution, uh, 1789. Uh, the French Revolution is, is gaining steam on the back of a huge cultural divide uh, made up of three estates. Uh, the nobility and clergy at the top, and the commoners at the bottom. The commoners, of course, make up the, the majority of the population, and they are also paying the most taxes, which is, is, is uh, supporting the elite, the nobility up the top, who are you know, drinking their champagne and living life of opulence. It's the, the cultural background to the famous quote attributed to Marie Antoinette, who when told that the peasants, they don't have any bread, responded by saying... Let them eat cake, <laughs> right? So, in the end, as you know, the people stormed the Bastille, the National Assembly was formed, who acted as a revolutionary government. And the big debate at the time centered around the power of the king, Louis XVI. And the debate in the Assembly was about his level of power and authority. And so, what they did is, if you, if you thought the king should have absolute veto rights you were asked to sit on the right-hand side of the assembly. If, however, you thought that he should have partial veto rights, which, by the way, was the radical view of the time, you were asked to sit on the left. Right Now, that wasn't like a big political statement at the time. They were literally trying to count the people. There's like 1,500 people in a room. They needed to count them. But they then realized that... This is a hostile debate, and people got very comfortable hanging out with people on the right, and people got very comfortable hanging out with those on the left. And so just like that, France started the idea of change versus tradition. Liberalism versus conservatism. All right? And that, from there, it's an incredibly complex, fluid history on how it gets into popular culture. Um, and it's helpful to acknowledge that the terms left and right are very simplistic and often quite unhelpful. But often when we're talking about the left and the right, we're talking about a distinction between progressives and conservatives. Right? So when it comes to shaping uh, the big issues of our day, progressives, they want to push for change. We want change. We want a revolution. Whereas conservatives value tradition and order, and keeping things the way they are. Uh, values for those on the left 
often center around fairness and equality and collectivism and internationalism. Uh, they believe in a big government uh, with high taxes, particularly among the rich, so they can distribute that wealth equally and, and care for the poor. So there's lots of emphasis on public housing and public education and public health care. Uh, and of course, the left is associated with progressive ideas when it comes to gender equality and sex and climate change. In our context, the Labour Party would be centre-left, Right, centre-left. If you wanted to go further left, you're going to be at the Greens. If you want to go even further left, you're going to be at the Communist Party of Australia, which wants to kind of tear the whole system upside down. On the flip side, on the right side of politics, um, historically is about keeping the government out of people's lives. Uh, Right-wing is usually associated with conservative views when it comes to freedom of speech, uh, gender, uh, uh, sexuality, and they see a bigger role for religion uh, and tradition in society. Uh, they value the freedom of each individual, and so they want to minimize taxes and in, in private companies, uh, cut out all of the red tape so that people can fly and flourish and pursue what they want. In our context, uh, the Liberal Party would be considered centre-right. Uh, if we were to go far-right, you'd be at the Australian First Party, Further right, you're hanging out with Pauline Hanson and the One Nation Party. Uh, One Nation, if you didn't know, they're pro-life, pro-guns, and for the Canadians among us, pro-cannabis. So there you go. Now, when talking about the left and the right, it's important to say that very few, if any of us, fit neatly into one category. Um, for example, uh, you might have migrated to Australia and be very pa passionate about uh, equality when it comes to race relations, right? Which historically would make you a little bit on the left side of things. However, you may have a worldview that absolutely believes in traditional gender roles. Well, that would probably make you a little bit on the right. Uh, similarly, uh, you might not like government playing a big life, a big role in your life, particularly when it comes to religion, which characterizes you on the right. But you may despise aggressive nationalism, which puts you on the left. Right? So these, again, these, these categories have some helpfulness, but very few people land in just one. Uh, it's also important to acknowledge that there are mor uh, moral ideals that underpin each side of politics that we not only need to understand, but often learn from. We need both to work together. For example, uh, psychologist uh, Jonathan Haidt points out the helpfulness of progressives who tend to challenge traditional authority because when pushed to the extreme, traditional authority can be restrictive and repressive, particularly for those who are at the bottom of the hierarchy. Uh, by contrast, traditionalists, they value history and order. They don't want to see a society that is constantly changing and constantly confusing that can easily quickly fall into a sea of chaos. It's not that they don't care about justice and equality and all of those things. They just believe that a healthy society is one of order, and establishing order is very hard and very easy to lose. Uh, all of which to say there are moral ideals under both the left and right that we can both engage in and that we need. This leads to my second point. You still with me? 
Number two, the topics we're discussing are politically charged, but also incredibly personal. We're going to debate these issues together. We're going to dive into the data. We're going to look at different legislations and what governments, you know, we're going to do all that. But we must keep in mind, City on a Hill, that what we are talking about isn't just cultural, social, political, but deeply personal. Transgender rights, which I'm going to explore next week, uh, can't be reduced to a debate around pronouns and gender-inclusive bathrooms. Transgender rights uh, impacts parents, uh, fathers and mothers trying to work out, how do I raise a child in a world where uh, your identity is now a social construct? What am I to do with that? What does love look like in that context? Uh, it's about a teenage girl uh, who feels um, anxious about her identity, who feels uncomfortable in her body, who isn't sure where to go, where to find her meaning. Uh, it's about a man entering his retirement, now looking back on his whole life, wondering if he's lived the whole time as a lie. Uh, these are deeply personal issues. And so I want you to know that in preparation for this series, I have read extensively and researched far and wide, as you would expect, for topics like this. But what I have found of particular value is meeting with real people to hear their real lived experience. And my hope through left and right is that we take time to listen and learn from each other. To not stand at a distance, shooting down our opponents with our best arguments, but instead to take a posture of humility that seeks to enter in and understand. You know, when I look at Jesus, I think about Jesus in this political age, I see one who spoke with authority. I see Jesus speaking with truth and conviction and power, but it never came from a distance. Jesus didn't teach from above. John says, He is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. Jesus met with a woman at the well. Jesus had lunch with the tax collector. Jesus is there with the political leaders, and Jesus is right there with the prostitute. Let me encourage you to lean in. Let me encourage you to ask good questions and to listen well. That's not to say that you can't express your opinion or what you think is right. City on a Hill, like we are a Bible-believing church. We are committed to the truth. We're committed to God's Word. But we must, as the church, reclaim the lost art of speaking the truth in love. We've got to be a people marked by Christ-like conviction, and we most certainly must be marked by Christ-like compassion. And here's something else I, I want to add on this point here. As you seek to get to know those around you, I'm hoping and I'm praying that you will get greater clarity about yourself. Uh, we need to be honest to recognize not only what we believe, but why do I believe what I believe? Um, the world that you're living in, that I'm living in, this culture that we're all swimming in, isn't neutral to what you think and what you feel and what you believe. 
whether you're work, walking through Burke Street Mall, whether you're reading The Economist, whether you're watching Netflix or scrolling your social media, there are a million and one messages all vying for your attention, all hoping to get your trust, all looking for your belief. As I've said before, the question is not, am I being discipled, but who or what is discipling me? Right? So everybody has a right to an opinion, but not every opinion is right. And so I'm hoping that as a church, we can all take a moment to face into our thinking, hold up our beliefs, and examine our heart. Third, third observation. Left and right, listen, it's an opportunity to acknowledge the great contribution of the Christian faith while also repenting of our own failings and sin. Um, it's probably no surprise to anyone here that one of my favorite Christian leaders, heroes, is Billy Graham. Uh, powerhouse for gospel ministry. Um, probably one of the greatest evangelists the world's ever seen. Um, amazing man of God, integrity. and He grew up, as many of you know, uh, in America's South. And it was a time of uh, strict segregation, uh, injustice that caused tremendous hurt and pain to people of colour. And, and there's a lot of uh, debate, I guess you could say, about Graham's role as a Christian leader at that time. Uh, there are some who commend him for what he did. For example, when he's preaching in the South, he would never allow segregation in the church. But to be honest, most of the biographies that really talk about Graham will point out that actually, when it came to the civil rights movement, he was a coward. Um, some say his nods to racial tolerance were token at best. Uh, he didn't choose to march with other Christian leaders. Uh, he refused to confront the issue head on. Uh, he often, often criticized activists who were always trying to change laws saying, no, 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 our focus should be on the heart. One of the greatest letters ever written was by Martin Luther King while in Birmingham prison. And if you have not read this, read it and allow it to minister to you. Uh, this letter he writes is aimed squarely at the church and leaders like Billy Graham. This is what he says. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods or direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And then he adds this. We 
will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. Throughout this series, we are going to look at our own story, the past and the present. And by God's grace, I anticipate there'll be times where we are comforted, and by the Spirit, there'll be times where you and I will be confronted. Oh, there's much that we, the Christian church, can celebrate and thank God for, times of great uh, courage and sacrifice. But can we accept good without also acknowledging evil? Can we pat our own backs while being ignorant to the blindness of our own sin and silence? One of my observations about this political age that we find ourselves in is acknowledging that the church has become incredibly good at calling out the twig in the world's eye while being completely blind to the log that is in ours. So when, for example, Disney announced they were looking at a, uh, looking to include gender uh, non-conforming characters, the church was in uproar. They rallied together at the, at the steps of Disney with loud voices and screams and, and posters. And yet, as commentators point out, this is the same church that has been silent to their own financial corruptions and misuse of power. This is the same church who for decades has stood silent in the face of clergy abuse. And here they are up in arms over a diversity policy at Disney. In the words of Jordan Peterson, if you can't even clean up your own room, who the hell are you to give advice to the world? You know what's fascinating about Jesus is uh, he opposed evil, uh, never afraid to call out sin. But you are going to be hard-pressed <laughs> to find him railing against the world. Yes, he flipped the tables on religious folks who were misusing the temple and turning it into a den of robbers. Yes, he had courage in his spine to call out the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. Yes, he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the scribes who bended the law to serve themselves. But what do you see when it comes to his interaction with a woman caught in adultery? What do you see with the tax collector and the drunk? What do you see when it comes to the prodigal son who had squandered everything? In Jesus, you see the friend of sinners. Uh, Jesus himself said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. So let me just say this. If you've come to this series um, expecting 12 weeks of grandstanding and railing against the world that we can feel good about ourselves, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. Now, are there things in our surrounding culture that are at odds with God's good design? Absolutely. 
But it's my um, desire and duty to first take out the log in my own eye. As the Apostle Paul himself said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Fourth and finally, still with me? Fourth and finally, here it is. Don't go left. Don't go right. Go deeper. There is uh, an incredible moment in John's Gospel. Um, We're told, like, 10,000 people are following Jesus, right? Uh, They're out in the fields of Galilee, and they've they've seen his his, his miracles, and they've heard some of his teaching, and they're like, "I, I need to find out more about this Jesus. So people have come everywhere to see him. And in fact, they're so kind of focused on this Jesus that there's some grumbling. Like, literally, people are hungry and thirsty, they don't know what to do. They haven't got any further. They didn't, they didn't expect that they were going to follow Jesus this long. And what happens? Well, a little boy comes forward with his little lunchbox. There's some fish in there. There's some bread in there. Gives it to Jesus. What happens? Jesus prays and multiplies the bread and the loaves and feeds the multitudes. Um, amazing, amazing miracle. And, and people will point at that and say, see the compassion of Jesus. See how he cared for our hunger and cared for the least. And, and, and that's all true. That's all true. But it's what Jesus does next that is, that is even more striking. Um, Jesus begins to teach them. And, and what I love about Jesus is how he works incredibly hard to help people realize that their true hunger isn't actually food. Their true hunger isn't water or bread. No, our ultimate hunger is not physical, it's spiritual and it is eternal. Now, you must see the image with me. There's 10,000 people in the fields of Galilee, all of which are living at the height of the Roman Empire, the most dominant empire the world has ever seen. And within the crowd, you have a full spectrum of people. You have those who are loyalists to Rome. The great Rome, they, they, will, they will take any hill, they will lie down their life for Rome. And you have a whole band of other people who want to tear down Rome and will do it with a sword. You have people in the crowd who, politically speaking, lean very left, and you would have people who lean very right. You have in the crowd very devout religious people, worshipping one God or perhaps many gods. You have others who don't worship any God. You have men, you have women, you have young, you have old, you have introverts, you have extroverts. Uh, You have uh, people who are heterosexual and perhaps bisexual and practicing homosexual. You have people who've lived very wild lives and you have accountants, right? And what I love about Jesus is his, his authority and beauty and his ability to pinpoint what is common to us all, namely a deep Deep desire for meaning and significance and hope. There's this ancient book uh, called Ecclesiastes. And uh, in it, you know, uh, Solomon says, God, God has placed eternity on the hearts of all people. Whether you lean left or right, every one of us wakes up every day <laughs> longing for eternal meaning. Uh, 
eternal uh, peace, uh, eternal truth. Not just a a moment of joy or, or a moment of love. We all long for eternal joy, eternal love. And, and, and that's why, you know, you see people, we do it, you know, we throw ourselves at relationships. That's why we will throw ourselves at careers or our education. That's why we throw ourselves at politics. Because there is within us a deep desire for meaning, for purpose, for significance, for eternality. Which is why what happens next is so very important. Amidst all of your searching, amidst all of your thirsting, amidst all of your hunger, Jesus says to the crowd, as he says to us today, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus didn't come to start a political party. Jesus didn't come to rise, uh, raise up an army to bring down the Roman Empire. Jesus didn't even come to start a new religion. Jesus came to give you what you most desperately want and need. Jesus came to give you himself. I was talking with um, Tim Costello in, in preparation for this series. Uh, Tim, some of you know, served as the CEO of World Vision. Uh, prior to that, um, you know, ministry, he served as a lawyer in, in St Kilda to, to minister to the disadvantaged. Uh, whenever there's a big kind of social issue, he's often at the forefront of that. And it was fantastic to meet with him and talk about um, this world that we're in. And he had some great advice when it came to politics. He says, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper and go deeper into Jesus. He says, those on the left will pick out any Bible verses about justice. Those on the right will pick out any Bible verses about personal morality and family and marriage. Actually, the Bible speaks to both. It doesn't go either left or right, it goes deeper. And that's what I call people to do. Um, So I want to be completely honest um, about my intentions and hopes for this series. City on a Hill, we're not here to start a political party, right? That's not our aim. Uh, I have little desire to tell you which party you should vote for or even which issue is more important than the next. But I am here to help you see the truth of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, and the relevance of Jesus for your life. You don't have labor written on your heart. You don't have liberal written on your heart. You have the name that is above every name written on your heart. Now, do I want, believe that we as Christians should play an active role in society? Absolutely. There is going to be a call before us all because Christianity isn't just about thinking, it's about being and doing. Some of us need to wake up, take a hold of the gifts that God has given us and recognize it. Wow, in the grace of God, you can achieve immeasurably more than you could ever think or imagine. But none of that counts 
None of that will stand. None of that will have any eternal meaning if not grounded in the good news of Jesus. So don't go left. Don't go right. Go deeper. Um, I want to invite Dave and the, and the band to come up. And as I was thinking about today, I, I was praying about how, how do we hold this all together? And I, I really feel like God was wanting us um, to share communion together. To celebrate communion. Um, we're told in the Bible that the night before Jesus was betrayed, you know, what did he do? He took bread, right? The bread of life. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance, right? That as the body of Jesus on that cross was broken and pulled apart, we by faith are made one. And then he took a cup of wine and they drank that. And he said, drink this in remembrance of my blood, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. Forgiveness for the sins on the left. Forgiveness for the sins on the right. In Jesus, there's forgiveness for us all. And so we as Christians repent of sin. And in repenting, we come to Jesus drinking and eating from the good news of His grace. So I want to pray, and I'm going to invite you to come forward. Whether you come forward down the left, or you come down the right, choose your side. In Jesus, we are one. Let's pray. Father of all glory, you are creator of heaven and earth and every living being. We find our voice in you and you alone. And everything was made to give you honor. Everything was made to find joy in you. Oh, we confess that we fall short. Oh, we confess that our heart is prone to wander. You who made this world, know this world, love this world, care for this world, so much that you sent Jesus to die for this world. Draw us to Jesus. Help us to drink freely from the well of his life, to eat and know that in Jesus there is fullness of joy and satisfaction. Moved by your spirit, we pray for our good and your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.